So this evening, we take a look at the Parsha of Mishpatim. In the Parsha of Mishpatim, the Torah, so to speak, gets down to business. Many, many laws of uh, damages and uh, agreements and contracts and a lot of bin Odin Nechavira. And we'll begin at the beginning. Herik Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. The parsha begins, as we know, These are the mishpatim we shall put before them. And the first of the mishpatim is how to deal with an Evid Ivri. Ki sikne Evid Ivri. Should you purchase <coughs> a Hebrew servant, slave? He works for six years and then goes free in the seventh. And other details and particulars with regards to the Evid Ivri. And the basic question, which uh, many Mephorshim raise, is why is it that the Parsha of Mishpatim opens up with the discussion of Eved Ivri? Now, uh, one could, of course, give the classic response to that question, which is not an answer, but rather to disqualify the question by saying that, well, something has to go first, and whatever would open the Parsha, you would then ask, well, why does this one open it? So it's almost delegitimizing the question. But that's not correct, because there's something which would seem to mitigate specifically against opening the Parsha with Eved Ivri, and that is very simply because Eved Ivri is already in the middle of a Mishpat situation. By which we mean, how is it that a person comes to be sold as an Evid Ivri? <coughs> it's because he's stolen and he doesn't have the wherewithal to uh, repay. And thus, in the interest of allowing him to pay off his debt, he's sold as an Evid Ivri. Now, the background to this story is not mentioned until later in Parshas Mishpatim. A good uh, chapter or so in, the verse will say, if a person steals and doesn't have the wherewithal to pay back, so then vinimkar bignevaso. He's then uh, sold in order to make restitution and uh, compensation for his theft. And therefore the question is a valid question, because we literally started in the middle of a story. We don't even know yet, officially, how a person could ever come to be an Evid Ivri, and we're already discussing what to do if you acquire one. That then is the question, <coughs> why does Evid Ivri kick off, so to speak, and launch Parshas Mishpatim? And there's many, many uh, responses to or answers to this question. But I think an, an important part of the, the answer is <coughs> when we look into Evid Ivri and we see uh, many of the halachas, well-known halachas, in fact, that apply to the Eved Ivri. So it could serve to give us a perspective in, into a broader matter with regards to mishpatim, and by which we mean. We know there's many stipulations in terms of how the master is meant to treat the slave. He cannot give him any work that's demeaning. He cannot treat him in any way that's degrading. He has to take care of all of the, his, his Eved's needs. And indeed, there is the famous Yerushalmi in the first parak of Kiddushin, which says that in terms of basic needs, the master can't have anything that the servant doesn't have. So if you sleep with a pillow, the Eved needs a pillow. And because you can't have anything that the servant doesn't have, the Yerushalmi states, famously, that if there's only one pillow, the Evet gets it. It's a complete reversal of what we would have intuitively uh, seen as being the master and servant relationship. The master's job, the servant's job is to serve, but the master's job is to take care of the servant. And that's very important <coughs> because, in a sense, that's true of all of Mishpatim. With Mishpatim, we are introduced to an institution which is called the Shoftim, the Sanhedrin, the judges. 
And once again, the judges from a certain point of view are authority figures and they are in charge. The Shoftim on the Bezdin. It's important to realize that significantly, their relationship with the people is not one of mastery, it's one of service. They are public servants. They're serving the people in terms of administering the halacha and the din. And in fact, a, there is a famous episode which is recounted in Maseches Hurius on Daf Yud, where there were two uh, of the Chachamim uh, of the Gemara who were, <coughs> they'd fallen on hard times, and therefore they were offered a position uh, on a Bezdin. And they demurred. They refused for, per, for, for reasons of modesty. They didn't feel it, be, it, be, it befit them, such a, such a, uh, a title or a, a status. Until the one who offered them says, I'm not offering you mastery, I'm offering you slavery. In, in, in offering you a position on the, on the Bezdin or on the Sanhedrin, in his words, Do you think I'm offering you prestige? I'm giving you, I'm offering you to be a servant because that, that's what it means. And therefore, this perspective is so key in order to ensure that the Dayanim on the Bezdin are faithful to their job. It is no better illustrated than in the relationship of the master to the servant in the Evid Ivri. He is formally the master. Practically, he is the servant. His job is to take care of those who, who are under his uh, jurisdiction, and so too with the Shoftim themselves. So that's uh, a word with regards to how Parshas Mishpatim opens, and it's so important that it's worth almost cutting in half an episode and giving us the second half. He's already stolen. We'll talk about that later. He couldn't pay back. We'll talk about that later. Let's talk about how, how, to, how to relate to him when he's purchased. That's, that's first things first. <coughs> well, as we mentioned, much of what we would call Dine Nezikim, and we know that there is a, one of the orders of the Mishnah is called Seder Nezikim. It deals with damages and interpersonal issues, that come up, legal issues, altercations, and so on and so forth. <coughs> Much of that is in Parshas Mishpatim. And there's many uh, details in terms of if the damage occurred in this way, what does one need to pay? If, one, if one's animal's damaged, what does he need to pay? Was it, did they eat? Did they trample? Was it through violence? Was it the first three times? Is it afterwards? The person himself does damage directly. What if he lights a fire? It gets out of control. Many, many what are called avos nazikin, the main branches of, of damage, and then uh, subsidiary branches, avos and toldos. And that makes up a, many, many psukim in the parsha. And it leaves room for what you can call a disarmingly simple question. And that is, is it prohibited to damage someone or to damage their property? Now, of course, our instinctive answer is yes. And the inferred uh, from, uh, answer from the Parsha is obviously. But the reason why it's important to raise this question is because as far as we are concerned, a prohibition from the Torah requires a source in the Torah. And interestingly, whereas, as we, as we outlined briefly, the Torah devotes many, many verses to how to make restitution. If damage occurred, it never actually comes out and says explicitly that you're not allowed to do damage. It does not say something like lo uh, taziku, ishes re'ehu, or something like that. So we, we would have liked to have seen a prohibition phrased as such, because if, if there is no formulated prohibition, from where do we know that, the, that there actually is a prohibition? Now, it is true that the Torah uh, gives you the details of what to do if it happens, but needless to say, the understanding is not that that's just to help to take care of it, and if you can afford it, then you can do what you want. Clearly, you're not allowed to get into that situation. But, but this now is a question that occupies the minds of Rishonim and Achronim. Throughout all of Parshas Mishpatim, where will we see the Torah actually forbidding, on a Torah level, 
damaging the other person or property. Now, from my findings in this matter, <coughs> I think the best way to, to uh, present the various viewpoints is the way that Chazal sometimes do by referring to them as Shnaim Shehem Arba, two that are four. The reason why they are two that are four is because there are four answers in total from what I've uh, been able to <coughs> uncover. Two of them are negative prohibitions and two of them are positive mitzvahs. And if we take that as our map, then as we go through them, we should be able to see how indeed they are two that are four. One of the Rishonim who discusses this question, what is the source in the Torah? Where does the Torah tell you not to damage someone else? Is someone called the Ramah, known as the Ramah, not to be confused with the Ramah, who is Rabbi Moshe Israelis of Krakow of the 1500s, but rather this is the Ramah, Rabbeinu Meir Halevi, Abu Lafia. And he is in the, uh, in the times of the Rishonim, I think the late 1100s, early 1200s. And he actually has a commentary on, uh, we have from him on a couple of Masechtas called Yad Ramah. Very nice. In the second parakel of Basra, the Ramah says that the source in the Torah for the prohibition against injuring someone else or damaging someone else is not in Parshas Mishpatim. It is a prohibition, but it's in Parshas Kedoshim. And that, of course, is the famous verse. When you think about it, it seems, again, very simple. Not to put a stumbling block in front of a blind man. And what is the Torah prohibiting? Why is that forbidden? Because he could stumble into it and hurt himself, and you will be responsible. And that is forbidden. That is the source of the prohibition against damaging someone else. Now we note, interestingly, that the Ramah is on record now as translating that well-known verse, do not put a stumbling block in front of a blind man, keep shuto, meaning literally. It literally involves a stumbling block and an actual blind man or someone who can't see. And you cannot allow him to stumble and come to damage or injury. And the reason why that's noteworthy is because, as is well known, the Chazal have other explanations as to what this verse is coming to prohibit. Rashi quotes, for example, the Teras Kohanim, that it comes to prohibit giving someone bad advice. They're, they're blind, they don't know what's, what's, what's for their benefit here, you're causing them to stumble, you're leading them to, to a bad outcome. That's what's being uh, prohibited. The Gemara explains that Lifna Iver, as we know in Halacha, is to give someone the wherewithal to, to commit a prohibition. They're, they're stumbling, you're, lead, you're leading them to stumble, causing them to stumble. These are very, very, one, one would say, non-literal explanations of this prohibition. And yet Rashi does not quote the literal uh, translation. And as we, we often mention, and as a number of Mepharshim explain, it's because there's something about that verse which we may be making a presumption about. We may have taken a liberty in glossing over. Because the verse says, That's in Parshas Vayikra. As we know, the translation of that is, do not place a stumbling block in front of a blind man. However, if we would think how we would say that in Hebrew, it might not be the way the Pasuk says it. Because if you say, do not put or place a stumbling block in front of a blind man, the verb for to put or to place in Hebrew is lasim. So now, so now rather, uh, perhaps disturbingly, the Pasuk should have said, lifne iver lo tasim michshel. Do not place a stumbling block. Lo and behold, the Torah didn't say it. It's always very interesting when the Torah doesn't say what you thought it was saying. Because it says, lifne iver lo sitein michshel which literally means to give. 
But a stumbling block is not something that you give. It's something that you place. And that is why Rashi explains that the reference of the verse, even on a straightforward level, is to something that you give him that will cause him to stumble. Namely, bad advice, or the wherewithal to do an Avera, or so on and so forth. So that's a very interesting situation. One would never have thought it could be simpler than, than, than just referring to a stumbling block in a blind man. But lo and behold, when you look a little closer, um, the, the, you haven't done justice to the verse until you note that it didn't use the verb that we would have expected. And so, therefore, it is noteworthy that the Ramah, who's one of the Rishonim, he does explain the Pasuk literally. Not restricted, not exclusively, but also literally, that it refers to physically damaging a person. That is a negative prohibition in the Torah, and that is the source for the prohibition against damage, damaging someone else. In a sense, one could say that this is a major statement of the Ramah. Because actually, placing a stumbling block before a blind man or digging a pit that a person could fall into is not a direct act of damage. At the time that you put the stumbling block there, you're not damaging anyone. In fact, it will need the person to come along. He's almost contributing to his own, to his own damage, unwittingly, albeit. But, but in other words, this would rather fall in the category that we would call grama. You're causing damage, but you're not doing damage. And still the Torah prohibits it. So in other words, for our troubles, if this is the source of the prohibition, it emerges that the Torah is prohibiting not only to do an act of damage, but even to, even to cause someone to, to, to be damaged through what you did. And that's very important. As we know, uh, causing damage is not always a payable offense. It's hard to quantify a causation. But, but nonetheless, as part of the prohibition, it is, it is as prohibited as doing damage itself. Because digging a pit or putting a stumbling block is really uh, just causing damage. At the same time, and if we try and be um, precise, which we should, if this is the source for the prohibition of, of damages, one could counter that it is only, we only see this prohibiting injuring a person because the problem with putting a stumbling block in front of a blind man, the blind man will, will, will stumble and he will sustain injury. Injury of a person and damage of property are not the same thing. A person is not property. A person is a human being. <clears throat> and in many respects, we see that the halachas of, of injury of a person are more stringent and severe than damage to property. And therefore, that's also worthwhile noting. If this is the source, then we've only found a source for causing injury, to, pro to prohibit causing injury to a person, but not causing damage to property. So that's the, these are the, I believe, pertinent observations with regards to source number one from Rabbeinu Meir Halevi, namely the prohibition of putting a stumbling block in front of a blind man. The second prohibition, which is mentioned again in the Rishonim as a source for the prohibition against stealing, and, and, and it's also it's a, it's a chiddush in its own way, is from Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah of Verona, the, the uh, cousin of the Ramban, famous for his work Shari Tshuva, classic uh, Musa work, also has a commentary on Pirkei Ovos. And in his, the very beginning of his commentary to Pirkei Ovos, Rabbeinu Yonah says <coughs> that the source for the, pro, for the Torah prohibition against damaging someone's property is the prohibition of lotigzol. Lotigzol, not to steal, not to rob or not to steal. Now, the reason why this statement is so noteworthy is because we might have understood that the way that one violates the prohibition of stealing is by, there's two parts to the equation. It starts belonging to A, but then B comes along and unlawfully appropriates it, otherwise known as stealing. But in other words, one, one might have thought that both of these components need to be there, taking it unlawfully from A 
to be in order to be considered stealing. And normally that's what stealing is. And what Rabbeinu Yonah is telling us is that not only is it stealing if you take it, if you unlawfully take it from A and keep it for yourself, but it's equally stealing if you just take it out of A's possession and destroy it. In other words, the emphasis is not on your appropriation of his property. The emphasis is on the loss that you cause him by doing so. And if that's true, it makes no difference whether you take it for yourself or you destroy it. The, the focus is on the loss, and it's the same, and the Torah prohibits it through Lotigzal. So thus far we have from Rishonim, again, just to keep tally, are two uh, prohibitions which are tagged as sources for the prohibition of doing damage. The Ramah, the prohibition of Lotigzal. From there, we move from our negative mitzvahs, negative sources, to positive sources. And the first one, which is also mentioned by the Ramah, is the very obvious, as a positive mitzvah. And it's so ubiquitous, and it's so everywhere, it often runs the risk of being nowhere. In other words, it, it, it covers so many things, it, it's almost invisible. But, but if you take note of it, it's basically saying this is the, in one phrase, the guide towards what you, what you should do towards other people, what you can't do to other people. Says, you don't want someone else to damage your property, don't damage theirs. That's a Torah mitzvah, that's a Torah source. So, so, albeit it's not a it's not a negative prohibition, but it is a prohibition nonetheless that comes out by by reading the what, what the Torah stipulates. And finally, number four of the four, right, the second positive mitzvah. This is discussed in the Rashash, Reb Shmuel Straussen, that is to say, the great uh, tam, the great Godel of Vilna in the eighteen hundreds, in his glosses to Maseches. And he says, very interestingly, that there is a positive mitzvah, and that positive mitzvah is in our parsha, is of Hashavas Aveda, of returning lost property. There's many, many details to this mitzvah of returning lost property. They are, they are centered, of course, as we know, in the second parak of Bab Metziah, Elumetzius, it's the first Gemara that uh, children start to learn when they, when they learn Gemara. <coughs> In any event, Hashavah Saveda, the Torah requires that if there's a lost object, you need to return it to its owner. And as we know, and, and in fact uh, the Gemara states this explicitly in Masecha Sanhedrin and elsewhere, not only does it mean that if you find an object that's lost, you need to return it to its owner. But also, if you see that a person is in danger of losing something, you need to prevent that loss if you can. The, the, the Gemara says, for example, if you see that um, a stream is headed his way, which could flood his field and ruin his crop, and you can divert the stream. So the mitzvah that requires you to do so, to take action to prevent him from sustaining loss, is the mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda, of returning lost property. It's not returning property that was already lost, it's preventing his property from becoming lost. You need to, 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 to intervene, if you can, to prevent him sustaining a loss. Well, says the Rashash, if, if, Hashavah, if the mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda, the Torah mitzvah, involves not doing anything, or, 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 or more correctly, requires you to take action to prevent him to sustaining a loss, then dare we invoke a kalvachomer that it certainly prohibits you from doing anything which could cause him a loss, otherwise known as damage. And therefore, says the Rashash, in his understanding, the Torah source, because there, is, there must be a Torah source, for the prohibition against damaging, he is inclined to feel that it is based on the mitzvah of Hashabah Saveda. You're inquired to give him back something that he lost, prevent him from losing it, and then Kalvachomer, you can't be the reason why he lost it in the first place. 
to actually cause or do him damage. So this, this is a very interesting discussion because one could learn through uh, Baba Kama, Baba Mitzi and Baba Basra and uh, the Dafyomi is getting there soon and, and go through all of those uh, Masertas, which is of course fantastic, and never ask this question because it's not formally discussed in the Gemara uh, and therefore uh, specifically from the vantage point of uh, Parshas Mishpatim and Psukim and sources in the Torah, a very valuable question to raise and very wonderful answers as we've seen, as we call them, Shnaim Shein Arba, two negative prohibitions, two positive uh, commands. I'd like to pay attention now to move further into the uh, Parsha, have a look at Perik Kaf Beis, Psukim Kaf He and Kaf Vav. Okay, so we're in Perik Kaf Beis, Psukim Kaf He and Kaf Vav. And we're within the world of loans, that is to say lending items. And moreover, some, the Paso Cafe describes you may take something as security, as collateral against repayment of the loan, which you're entitled to do. However, there are halachas that, that uh, cover this as well. <coughs> Certain guidelines. What can you take and, and, and what are your responsibilities? If you would take a security, your fellow's clothing, and it's clothing that he will need at a certain time in the day, for example, let's say it's his, it's his night clothing. So, you need to return it to him when he'll need it. You're required to return, even the collateral, you cannot hold something that he needs and if it reaches the time that he needs it, you have to give it back to him. Come the morning, you can take it again from him. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a loose, it's a very loose connection now. Because certainly he doesn't feel the pinch as much because whenever he needs it, you'll have to give it back to him. But that's part of the compassion that you need to show um, when it comes to, to these things. Even Ben Adam Lachavero, you'll get your money in the end. But, uh, but you've got to be a mensch in the meanwhile. And the Torah requires it. And now, let us see Pasuk Kafvav. You've got to give him back this clothing, if, this article of clothing if he needs it, because this is all he has. He's in La Sola Rome. That's his clothing for that time of the day. What's he meant to sleep in? And it will be, if he cries out to me, I will, I will hear, for I am gracious. And that's the end of that section. And if we could summarize what, what this final verse is saying is, you have to give it back. Because if you don't, and if he cries out to me in his distress, I will hear. And I'm gracious. And Mepharshim are somewhat bothered by the, the, the flow of this message. Because it sounds like it's a warning. It sounds like it's a threat, so to speak. In other words, the, uh, a warning of, of retribution. But it said, Hashem concludes by saying, I'm, I'm gracious and kind. But that's a very encouraging thing to hear. How is that possibly standing behind a warning of retribution? It's almost as if the verse says, when he needs his things, you have to give them back to him. Because if you don't, there'll be trouble. Because I'm kind and gracious. That, that that's kind of gracious doesn't normally lead to trouble. What then does the Pasuk mean to say? It's a basic question in Pshat. How are the words kichanun ani, the words that explain everything that the Pasuk is talking about? And this question is actually discussed by the Tur. That is to say, Rabbi Yaakov, the son of the Rosh, the author of the Tur, and he's famous, we meant, whenever we mention his commentary, we, we, we uh, refer to this, he's famous as the Balaturim, right? No, no Mikroskodolos is complete without the Balaturim. And what is the Balaturim? It's those gematrias and, and, uh, and allusions within the words that are very wonderful. But what is not so well known is that that is not the, the subtotal 
of the Torah's commentary on the Torah. He actually has a commentary which discusses matters of pshat, uh, much as other commentators do. The way my father's Asal explained it to me is that, is that th- these gematrias, what we call the Balaturim, were printed uh, at the beginning of his, of his commentary for each parsha, and people became so enamored with them that in time, they just start, they, all the tension shifted to them. And no one actually learned his parish. And everyone just was, was so in, involved in these, these uh, gematrias and so on, to the extent that the parish itself got uh, dropped. And, and even now, it is printed in a separate volume, which is called Perush Hator Ha'aroch, the, le- the long commentary of the Torah, whereas its real name should be the actual commentary of the Torah, because this is where he, he actually begins his Parshanut uh, discussions. Either way, everything is totally bemazel, um, and the Torah himself was not consulted as to which parts of his commentary should be in the Mikros Gadolos. In any case, back to our question. Our question is, Hashem says, you have, to, you have to give him that collateral when he needs it. Because otherwise, well, if he, call, if he calls out to me, I will answer, and I am gracious. And our question was, how does that form a warning? And the tour explains that the Pasuk, explains the Pasuk differently. Chidush in Parshanut. We understood that what the Pasuk is, is saying is, you have to give it back because if you don't, and he cries out to me, then I will hear him. And then we weren't sure how that clips together with the concluding words, because I'm gracious. But the Torah says no. The, the end of Pasuk Kavav is not a warning of retribution. It's a promise of reward. It's not a description of him crying out if you do the wrong thing. It's him crying out to me because you've done the right thing. In other words, Pasuk Kafei says you have to give it back. And the reason why you have to give it back is because this is all he has. We naturally assume that when the verse goes on to say, because when, when, when he, he cries out to me, that's if you don't do the right thing. But the Torah says no. This is what you should do. Give it back to him when he needs it. Otherwise, what will he have? And if you do that, when he cries out to me on your behalf, meaning to pray on your behalf, I will heed his prayer, because I'm gracious and so were you. And therefore his tefillis will be very well accepted. If we can see the, the, the shift in a sense, because once again, just to... to, to Put in one sentence, what the, the Torah is explaining is that the final words, ki etc., again, they're not at the basis of a warning of what will, go, what will go wrong if you don't heed this commandment. It's everything that will go right if you do. And the poor man crying out to me is not crying out in anguish because you didn't give him his collateral back, but crying out in gratitude on your behalf because you did. But there is another explanation to how these words, kichanon ani, could actually be the basis of retribution. And, the, and they themselves are based on a comment of the Vilna Gon relating to the beginning of Megillas Rus. As we know, Perig Aleph of Megillas Rus, there's a famine in the land, Elimelech and his wife and his, uh, his two sons, they go out, they marry Rus and, and Orpah, and, and then they are punished. <coughs> and who's left at the end of chapter 1? It's just... Nami and Rus. Okay, Orpah persisted for a while, then, then, but then she acquiesced and left. It's just Nami and Rus. And when people come back, because the famine has abated, they heard, right, in Beislechem, the famine, the famine has abated, they come back, and people look at them. And they say fam- the famous words, Hazos Nami, is this Nami? She looked, I guess, so different, or she's so impoverished and so weathered. Hazos Nami? And what does Nami say in response to that? She says, don't call me Nami. Call me Mara. Don't call me Nami. Nami means pleasantness. Things are not pleasant for me. Call me Mara. Things are bitter for me. Because she says, <coughs> and she, why would you call me Nami? Vashem Anabi. Hashem has responded to to me, meaning to, to, to the wrongdoing that I was involved in. 
she, she, she wasn't the instigator, but she left along with her husband. She's the only one left. And she says, you may as well call me Mara. Call me, don't call me Nami. The, things are not pleasant for me. And the Vilna Gaon asks a simple question. One has to say it uh, in, in the right way. <clears throat> but the Vilna Gaon says, you know, if you're going through a hard time, so that's unfortunate, but it's not a reason to change your name. You can't change your name every time you're going through a hard time. Uh, and if things brighten up again, so you'll be Nami again? And if you're feeling in a certain way, every, every, with every circumstance you go through, a name change presumably is, is there to stay until further notice. It's, it's not something that gets updated or, 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 or changes along with the situation. It's an interesting question. Because it sounds like Nami is not expecting her situation ever to improve again. You may as well call me Mara because I do not ex- anticipate Nami circumstances ever again. But why not? What about maybe Hashem will have Rachmanus? Says the Vilna Gon. And it's much to ponder here. The attribute of kindness, Hashem's divine attribute of kindness, normally results in positive things for people, of, of compassion and kindness. Positive things. But sometimes the attribute of compassion and kindness itself can be a source of retribution. Why would that be? He gives a marshal. He illustrates with, a, 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 with an analogy that if you have a father and one of his sons, like the, 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 the older son, is, uh, is hitting the younger son and then you know, really, uh, you know, giving him, a, a roughing him up. And then the younger son is crying. So, so the father will, will intervene and he will punish the older son for, for needlessly having inflicted violence on his younger brother. What if the, what if the older son would say, but, but you're my father. And of course, father to son normally re- results in compassion. But here, it will only make things worse. Because as the father of both of them, it, it more ignites feelings of outrage that he would do this to his younger son because he's a father of that younger son also. So it's actually his fatherly feelings that could be what's behind the way that he's dealing harshly with one of his sons. So it's, it's a very interesting <coughs> and important point to consider. And what does that mean for us? Says Vilna Gaon, very, very uh, significant words, devastating almost. Hashem says, I'm, I'm kind and compassionate. And normally, that should lead you to expect good things, favor from me. But not if you weren't kind and compassionate. What if you uh, abused someone who was poor? What if you uh, didn't do the right thing by them? What if you let them to suffer? So my very feelings of kindness and compassion on their behalf will actually be a source of greater retribution towards you. And says, says the Vilna Gaon, it's a very difficult situation to be in. Because if a person's going through difficult circumstances, they, they would always hope for Rachamim. But what if they consider that their circumstances are coming from Rachamim? It's because they didn't have Rachamim on people. So actually Hashem's attribute of mercy is also complicit or endorsing or more or even adding to, to, to their retribution because they were so lacking in compassion. And this, says the Vilna Gaon, <coughs> is what Naomi says. She says, change my name. Why? You, maybe Hashem will have Rahmanus. If he has Rahmanus, says Naomi, he'll have Rahmanus on the people that we left behind. In other words, her wrongdoing again, her together with her now deceased husband, was that they, they left the Jewish people in distress in a time of famine. And therefore, says, says Nami, so, so what can I hope for? In other words, Hashem will, will have Rachmanus. The Midah of Rachmanus is also part of what is, is responsible for, for my situation because it's responding to, to my lack of Rachmanus, my... my uh, um, 
lack of compassion for the Jewish people as we left them behind in the famine. And that's why she says, Vashem onabi. Vashem, that is to say, Yudke Vavke. He responded to me. And Yudke Vavke, as we know, is the attribute of mercy. In other words, I'm being punished by Hashem's attribute of mercy for my lack of mercy towards the Jewish people. So then, so then what, what, for which attribute can I hope that, that, that better times will come? Mercy will, could only make things worse. You may as well change my name. Call me, call me Mar. In the end, better times came from a different situation but this is, and different circumstances, but these, this is the Yisod. And, and, and that is how he explains our Pasuk of Vashamati Kichanun Ani. You, you may end up being punished because I'm compassionate, because you weren't compassionate on him, and therefore Hashem's compassion can, can react to that and, and, and actually lead to punishment. It's very interesting to see resonance of this idea of the Vilna Gon amongst one of the, in one of the classic Hasidic Svarim, the Sefer Bnei Yisoschar, Rabbi Melech of Dinov, one of the great uh, Hasidic works. And he directs our attention <coughs> to to the, it's, we know it as the Haftarah for Nachamu. It's the, the section in Yeshaya, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. And we note that Nachamu, Nachamu is doubled over, right? Comfort, comfort, right? Nachamu, Nachamu. And moreover, the idea of a, a double dose of comfort, so to speak, really is symmetrical with the end of the Pasuk. Because the Pasuk says, Ki lokcha me'im Hashem kiflayim b'chol chata'eha. Because the Jewish people received double measure, kiflayim, kefel, for their sins. So you see, it's not for nothing that the opening is nachamu, nachamu. Right? Comfort, comfort. It's a double dose of comfort because they received a double dose of, of retribution. Kiflayim. But the question is, why? Or where does this double measure come from? And the Bnei Soschar literally echoes the idea of the, Vil- of the Vilna Gon in his own way because, as we know, what leads to, to our goddess that we're in is Sinas and sinas chinam is, is a lack of compassion towards others. I mean, that's the mildest way to put it. And therefore, when it comes to the attributes, n- normally we would say Hashem's attribute of justice pushes for punishment, but the attribute of mercy pushes for, for clemency. But here, both attributes are pushing for punishment. Because when Hashem says, but, but what about mercy? The response is, and what about the mercy for your victims of your sinas chinam? And that's called kiflayim bechol chato'er. It's a double measure of retribution each time. Because it's not just the attribute of justice, but also the attribute of mercy. And that's why it says again, ki lokcha me'im Hashem kiflayim. Hashem yudke vavke, the name of rachamim. If, I, if, if the name of Rachamim is also advocating for punishment, that, that's, that's double punishment, not only Midas Hadin. So then where does, the, where does the redemption come from? It comes from rectifying that idea to such a degree that not only will Midas HaRachamim, that is to say, to, to positivity towards others, to uprooting Sinas Chinam, to such a degree that not only Will Midas Harachamim be on our side again, so to speak, pushing for, pushing for, for uh, succor and for, for salvation? But also Midas Hadin, a full rectification. And that's called Nachamu Nachamu. And that's why it says, Nachamu Nachamu Ami Yomar Elokeichem. Elokim is Midas Hadin. In other words, the double comfort comes when even, when even Midas Hadin, Elokeichem, signs on on the comfort. That is the absolute rectification of when even Midas Harachamim was signing on on the punishment. These are the comments of the Yisrael, as we said, um, very clear resonance with uh, the idea of the, of the Vilna God. And from here, we move to the end of the Parsha. Perik Kaftalad, the final chapter, which is quite different, in fact, um, because it goes back to matters of Matan Torah. If we have a look at Perik uh, Kaftalad, even just to read the first Pasuk, Ve'al Moshe Amar, Perik Kaftalad, Pasuk Aleph, to Moshe, Hashem said, Alei Hashem, 
go up to Hashem. You are another Vaviu. It's, it's yet back and forth in terms of Torah matters. Have a look at verse 3. Moshe, Moshe uh, comes, he tells the people Hashem's words. All Hashem's words, Hashem, all the laws. And the people accept it. It's like a throwback almost to Matan Torah. But the question is, at this stage, what are Divrei Hashem? What are Hashem's words being referred to here? And what are the Mishpatim being referred to here? Further on, in Pasuk Zion, verse 7, Moshe took the book of the covenant, and they said, What's the book of the covenant? What are these things? So these very, the answer to these very simple questions is really based on a major discussion it exists already in, in the Medrash, in the Mechilta, that is to say, and it's elaborated upon by Rishonim. And the basic Parshanut question about the first 11 verses of chapter 24 is when did they occur? Because the flow of Parshas, as we have them, last week was Parshas Yisro, events leading up to and including the Aseris Adibros, then we move on post that and then Parshas Mishpatim, and now we have the beginning of chapter 24. When did that happen? Rashi says, on, on Pasuk Aleph, Parshazu Ne'emar Kodem Aseris Hadibros. These verses, this Parsha, that is to say the first 11 verses of chapter 24, Happened before the Aseris Adibros. This was all part of things. This took place two days before, uh, before the giving of the Torah. Two or three days before the giving of the Torah. Seemingly, in Rashi is invoking the concept of a muktamam uchaba Torah. Sometimes things that are mentioned or written later in the Torah doesn't mean they happen later, they happen before. Why would Rashi say they happened before? That's a question that we will yet have to see. But it's clear that Rashi says the events in the end of Mish- described at the end of Parshas Mishpatim happened two or three days before the, be- the giving of the Torah. Now this will have major implications for what it is that Moshe says to the people. For example, in Pasuk Gimel, he tells them Hashem's words. He tells them the Mishpatim. If all of this is on the 4th of Sivan, before the Torah has been given, what can he tell them? The Torah hasn't been given yet. And Rashi d- addresses this. Rashi says, Divrei Hashem is the mitzvahs of preparing them, for, preparing them for Matan Torah. And what's Mishpatim? Says Rashi, Sheva Mitzvahs B'nei Noach, right, which they knew, seven Noachide laws, I mean, that they have already. And a couple more that they got in Mara. As we know, when we stopped off in Mara, Shamsam no Choku Mishpat, even before Matan Torah, Shabbos, Kibbutz Para Aduma, and so on and so forth. So we see very clearly, for Rashi, if these events happen before the giving of the Torah, so the only mitzvahs that Moshe can be communicating to the people are mitzvahs that were given before Matan Torah, which is very few. Moreover, what's the Sefer Abris? The Book of the Covenant, again, there were two days before the giving of the Torah. What's the Sefer Abris? Rashi. Mibratius at Matan Torah. Sefer Abris is the only part of the Chumash that could have been written already from Bratius until their time, until Matan Torah, but nothing more, because nothing more has happened. So these are Rashi's uh, comments, and again, all of this is wrapped up in, in, uh, with Rashi's understanding that these 11 verses happened before Matan Torah. Ramban is not having it. Ramban, he asserts that as surely as these uh, verses are written, written at the end of Mishpatim after Matan Torah, they refer to events that happened after Matan Torah. And as we know, we've mentioned in the past, although there is a principle of Ein Muktam Mu'chabat Torah, it can happen that the, what's written later on happened before. 
but Ramban does not share Rashi's view regarding how liberally that can be applied. Rashi will use it a number of occasions. Ramban almost never. It's the last thing he'll do. It's literally in the, in the emergency uh, uh, gear at the back, where when it, if there's an absolute breakdown, you, you, you open it up and use it. Otherwise, says Ramban, where it's written, that's when it happened. Which means, uh, for Ramban, again, all of these verses that we checked in with before will now need to be uh, reassessed in light of this. Hashem told Moshe to, to, to all of these verses are after Matan Torah. And therefore, says Ramban, when Pasuk Gimel says that Moshe came and spoke and told B'nai Yisrael, Divrei Hashem and Mishpatim, you know what those are? Those are the things that were said after Matan Torah. Parshas Yisro ends with a number of mitzvahs, right? Shavi of Parshas Yisro, various things. That's Divrei Hashem. And what's Mishpatim? Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim, which has also been said until then. And, and, and moreover, says Ramban, these things that have already been received since the giving of the Torah, those, those additional mitzvahs are at the end of Yisro, and Parshas Mishpatim, they are the Sefer Habris. They're the Book of the Covenant. In other words... <coughs> We have the, we receive Aseris Adibros, then a number of mitzvahs and mishpatim, and then there's a bris. We've received enough to represent what the Torah wants from us, and there's a follow-up, which is Sefer Habris. And for this reason, says Ramban, very interestingly, as much as Parshas Mishpatim, we would say, in the main, is about mishpatim, but, to, but towards the end, it seems to digress into many, many different areas of, of, of mitzvahs. When you get into more Ravi, Chamishi, Shishi, Shabbos, and Shemitah, and Shalash Regalim, and the Basa Vachala, and there's a lot of non Mishpatim things, says Ramban. Yes, because this will be the Sefer Abris. Parshas Mishpatim is the book of the covenant, and the, and the covenant for mitzvahs in total. It's not all the mitzvahs, but it should give an idea of the different types of mitzvahs, and that's why Parshas Mishpatim digresses at a certain point to, to represent all different types of mitzvahs. It's the Sefer Abris. And, and according to this, says Ramban, the, the meaning of Naseh Nishma is now very clear. Because what the Bnei Yisrael are saying is, we've only heard a sampling of the mitzvahs, we know there's more to come. And the answer to both is yes. Meaning, Naaseh, we undertake to do the mitzvahs that we already have just been shown, presented with, and Nishma, and we're fully prepared to hear and heed the rest. So that's Naaseh and Nishma. We've received Parshas Mishpatim, Naaseh. What about the rest? Nishma, ready to hear. Now, it should be noted that as much as Rashi seems to be working against the flow of the sequential flow of the Parshas, it's written at the end of Mishpatim, and yet Rashi asserts that it happened before the giving of the Torah, there is one thing in Rashi's favor. And that is verse 1 says, Ve'el Moshe Amar. Normally, when the Torah describes things that happened, it uses what's called the Vav Ahipuch, the Vav Conversive, meaning it would say Vayomer, Vayomer Hashem Moshe, as indeed it says in verse 12, Vayomer Hashem Moshe. I mean, that's, that's the way it's done. But if it's normally done with the Vav Ahipuch, with the, with the Vav Conversive, Vayomer, what's the meaning of saying Amar, of actually using the pure past tense? We already know Rashi's approach to this, that the pure past tense, Amar, instead of Vayomer, the difference between them is that Vayomer means then Hashem said. Amar means Hashem had already said. The, according to Rashi, this verse itself is indicating that this is something that had already happened. The question will yet remain, why does it need to be uh, uh, written here? But the verse itself is indicating, as much as it's written here, it's something that had already been said. Ve'el Moshe Amar. And that is something that Ramban will need to uh, contend with, which indeed he does. But these are the well-known positions of Rashi and Ramban. Again, they didn't originate with Rashi and Ramban. It's in the Mechilta, two opinions. Nonetheless, they became uh, much developed through Rashi and Ramban.
and if I can just add um, a PS here, and it's from the Meshachotim. And interestingly, it will relate, it will take us back to the end of Parshas Yisro, but very much wired into this discussion between Rashi and Rambach. The penultimate pasuk of Parshas Yisro reads, That is Perik Kaf, Pasuk Kaf Beis. And if you should make a Mizbeach of stones, they should not be hewn stones. You shouldn't use metal implements to cut them, to hew to, to them, to shape them. Because if you, if you brandish a sword over uh, stones of the Mizbeach, you have profaned that stone. So cutting implements are out. Okay. As we know, <clears throat> uh, and Rashi even says this, the Pasuk starts, If you make a Mizbeach, except in what way is it dependent or, or conditional? It's something that, that must happen. There is a mitzvah to make a Mizbeach. Why is it spoken about with the word im? It's a basic question. Rashi goes so far as to say that even though the word im is used, which denotes if, here it means if and when, because it's not optional. It's an obligation to build a, a mizbeach of stone. But the Meshachachma says it's possible to understand why the word im was used. According to the Ramban, the events in Perak Kafdalad happened after Matan Torah. One of those events, which is described in Pasuk Dalad, is Moshe built a mizbeach. Right? By even Moshe Mizbeach, because that was part. Now, he, now, no one told him to build that Mizbeach, but he did anyway. And therefore, according to Ramban, says Meshachachma, we, we can now understand why the Pasuk says, Ve'im Mizbeach Avanim, because it's not only referring to the Mizbeach that you have to make, but it's actually addressing Moshe also and saying, if you will make a Mizbeach, which in the end Moshe did, that also cannot be cut with metal implements. And that's how im comes in. If it's only the Mizbeach of the Beis HaMikdash, that's not im, that's definite. But if it's including the Mizbeach of Moshe, so then that's im. And the Meshachachma goes further. Because Moshe's Mizbeach had the status of what we call a bomber. A bomber is a private Mizbeach. That is to say, it's not the one in the Beis HaMikdash or in the Mishkan. It's additional to that, which sometimes is acceptable, what's called a bomber. If it's true, and this is now a chiddush from Meshachachma, if it's true that Hashem's instructions to Moshe include the Mizbeach that Moshe might make, so what do we discover? That not only is the Mizbeach of stone in the Beis Hamikdash cannot be hewn with metal implements, but even a bomber that a person makes privately when they're sanctioned also cannot be cut with metal implements. That's a chiddush. In halacha. You say, this is not the base of Mikdash, it's my own private altar. Yeah, make arrangements. You can't cut it with, it's also part of the prohibition of not cutting it with metal implements. Why is this so significant, aside from the fact that it's, it's a halachic uh, chiddush in halacha? Because the issue of metal implements on the Mizbech is one that finds its way into the Shulchan Aruch, not halachically, but minhagically. Because in Simon Kufpei, in the halachas of Birchas HaMazan, the Shulchan Aruch says there is an, an accepted minhag to cover knives during benching. Interesting. That minhag is from Rishonim, the Rokeach, the Abu Dram. And it's, it's a well-known thing. People cover metal knives, I guess, here uh, during benching. Why? Because the, the table is like a Mizbeach, says, uh, says the Beis Yosef. And just like you can't have metal implements on a mizbeach, so too at the time of benching, we recall the idea that the table is like a mizbeach and, and you, should you should cover over the knives. Now, what's interesting is the Shulchan Aruch goes on to say, on Shabbos and Yom Tov, you don't need to cover the knives. Why not? Because you can't build a mizbeach on Shabbos and Yom Tov, and therefore that whole analogy is not important. But now let's ask a simple question. What about during nighttime? Supper. It's dark. So, 
as surely as the halacha states that you can't build the Mizbeach on Shabbos and Yom Tov, it also states that you can't build the Mizbeach at night. It's a daytime mitzvah to build the Mizbeach. So by the same logic or by the same token that we don't bother covering the knives in Shabbos and Yom Tov because you can't build the Mizbeach, so at nighttime also no point in covering them. But people do cover them. Why? Says Meshachachma. It's for the reason that I explained. Because the idea of not having metal implements on a Mizbeach is true not only for the Mizbeach and the Beis HaMikdash, it's true also for a person who builds a private Mizbeach. Private Mizbeach can't be built on Shabbos and Yom Tov, but it can be built during the night. And therefore, says Meshachachma, you see how putting everything together, if the Im Mizbeach Havonim also includes Moshe's Mizbeach, and Moshe's Mizbeach is a Bama, a private altar, which is also now subject to, to the prohibition against having metal implements cut it, but that can be built at night. And that, says the Meshachachma, is what is behind the, the Minhag, that those who cover the knives cover them at night as well. The Mizbeach and the Beis HaMikdash can't be built during night, but Obama can. And we just discovered Obama is also subject to the, Beis HaMikdash, to, 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 the, to the prohibition of being hewn with metal implements. So it's a classic, once again, Meshachachma. He starts with the Parshanut, not afraid to give a different explanation than others before him. What does the word im mean with its halachic implications? Bama is also subject to this prohibition and what we refer to as its minhagic implications also, all the way down to the dinner table of your Jew, wherever he is, who covers these things, if he does, also during nighttime, and now we know why. So we'll leave it over there uh, for this evening. I wish you all a good night and a wonderful week ahead. All the very best.